All right, David and Goliath, part two. Here we go. Author continues. <clears throat> when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. When the Philistines were near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. Here ends this morning's reading from the book of 1 Samuel. Thanks be to God for these words of life. <clears throat> Raise your hand if you were familiar with this story before this morning, like for most people. All right, you can put your hands down. Now raise your hand if you have heard or read the actual text of this story before this morning. Yeah, minister's family. All right, we got a few. Very nice, very nice. But the, the majority of us didn't, which is, I think, kind of funny, right? I mean, David and Goliath is probably one of the first stories we learn in Sunday school. And even if you didn't go to Sunday school, it's one of the most referenced biblical stories in the secular world. And yet many of us are not terribly familiar with the primary source material. <clears throat> Although I don't recall exactly, I'm relatively confident that I was first introduced to this story right over there in one of the Sunday school rooms. Probably sometime between my baptism and my confirmation, which took place right there. So when I saw that this story popped up in the lectionary for this morning, I thought to myself, what better way to give back to the church that laid the foundation for my faith than to preach a sermon for adults on a story I've known pretty much my whole life, thanks to all of you, the church. Now, I must admit there is another reason why I chose this story. I love 
preaching Sunday school classics. My last sermon a few weeks ago was on Adam and Eve. I argue that Eve was framed. And, and what I love about preaching about these stories, as is evident from our little poll this morning, is that many of us are introduced to these stories at a young age and can be quite formative for us. But then as we grow older, we don't really revisit them. <clears throat> and honestly, I believe this is partially why some folks fall away from the faith as they enter high school or college or young adulthood. <clears throat> because a Sunday school level understanding of these stories is wonderful when you're little. But those same ideas don't hold up to complex adult-level scrutiny. Noah and the ark, Jonah and the belly of the fish, Daniel and the lion's den. These stories were not actually originally written for children, but for adults. So when we keep our understanding of them at an elementary level, we're doing a disservice both to the story itself as well as to our own mature understandings of our faith. So to begin, let's get that basic Sunday school understanding out on the table so we all have a common starting point. Generally speaking, this is viewed as a classic underdog story. <clears throat> we occasionally see it applied in court cases or politics, but overwhelmingly it is applied to sports. 1990, Douglas knocks out Tyson. 2018, 16th seeded UMBC beats number one seed Virginia by 20 points, no less. The 1980 amateur U.S. hockey team. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that an against all odds story of war has been transposed onto our current athletic culture. And even for the Bible, the saga about David is particularly hyper-masculine. It features warriors and battle and unfortunately, very few female characters. <clears throat> In fact, David's relationship with masculinity is actually a, a rather complex one, which we'll see manifest in this story. So let's take a look at the text itself. We've got the Israelite army on one side of the valley and the Philistine army on the other. <clears throat> and Goliath walks out from the ranks and challenges the Israelites' best warrior to a duel. How tall is Goliath? There's actually some confusion here. The first century historian Josephus and both the Dead Sea Scrolls and the fourth century Septuagint texts of Samuel, I hope you're taking notes. By the way, there will be a test. Septuagint is spelled S-E-P-T. No, you don't actually have to remember that. What you should note is that the oldest sources report Goliath as being four cubits in a span. How tall is that? LeBron. LeBron James is four cubits in a span. That's six foot nine. Now don't get me wrong, if I'm standing on the battlefield and LeBron or any other six nine dude for that matter walks out and offers to fight to the death, I wouldn't say I'm chomping at the bit to get out there. <clears throat> However, in my opinion, that's not exactly giant height either. Now sure, people in the ancient world were quite a bit shorter than we are today, so that height would be pretty imposing but they can't just like throw around the word giant. However, if you were paying attention, this morning's reading from the Masoretic text, which, is, which our translation of the book of Samuel uses, <clears throat> lists Goliath at six cubits in a span. That's nine, nine. That is like legit giant height. I don't care where you're from, what time period you're in. 
So how does this happen? I think this is uh, especially appropriate for Father's Day. I think we've got a how big was the fish you caught situation going on. Every time you tell that story, that fish seems to get a little bit bigger. Gentlemen, we've come a long way from dueling as a legitimate problem-solving technique, but even after thousands of years, we are still stretching the truth on stuff like how fast we could run or hard we can throw in high school, or whatever preferred Goliath that you slew back in your day was. But I digress. So Goliath comes out and offers this challenge. <clears throat> now we know from chapter 9, friendly reminder, we're in chapter 17 for this morning's reading. We know from chapter 9 that it is in fact Saul who might be the most qualified to go out there and fight. <clears throat> He's described in verse 2 as a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Head and shoulders above everyone else. Now, not 9-9, nine, nine, but as the biggest guy and the commander of the army, you'd think it would be his duty to go out there and fight. It's time to man up, Saul, to use a modern-day hyper-masculine phrase appropriate for this situation. But Saul doesn't. Instead, the focus of the story shifts to David. <clears throat> now, David has already been anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. But outside of this, David really doesn't have any qualifications or special qualities that would deem him deserving of this kind of title. His qualifications are literally from chapter 16, verse 12, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. That's it. David has the same qualifications as a Helmsworth. Except it is noted that David is shorter than all of his older brothers. So maybe we have like a 1986 Tom Cruise's Maverick situation. Regardless, David is also described as skillful in playing the lyre, a man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. But this is all word of mouth. He hasn't actually demonstrated any of this yet. So don't get me wrong, he's a good guy, but he's nothing unique yet. So if David is going to be the future king of Israel, he's probably going to need to prove that he's got the chops for it. And here's where David's relationship to masculinity gets a little bit more complex. He's the youngest of the brothers, so he's given the responsibility of tending the sheep at home while his three oldest brothers fight on the front lines, which is already probably a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. And so what gets the ball rolling is his father tells him to go and deliver food to his older brothers, his older, taller, and since they're serving in the military, ostensibly tougher brothers at the camp. Now this, is, this story takes place many years before Rome and the appearance of large standing armies. So it seems reasonable to me that the food supply for an army in a situation like this is probably not fully hammered out yet. So David shows up and hears about Goliath. And I want to bring attention to the last line of the first reading. David says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Two things to note here. The first 
is that we can assume that the Philistines are uncircumcised. This was a ritual that the Israelites took very seriously with roots tracing all the way back to Abraham, and it sets them apart from neighboring tribes. So to me, it is significant that David adds this already assumed modifier to Goliath. I believe it has to do quite directly with how Israelite masculinity is understood. The Philistines are not manly in the way that the Israelites are. In fact, they're simply wrong in their expression of manliness. So this battle in certain ways is quite explicitly about what kind of man is the manliest. The second point is that David characterizes the Israelite army as the army of the living God. To me, this is where secular interpretations of the story depart from the biblical intention. Yes, David is absolutely the underdog, but he isn't just fighting for himself. In fact, David makes this fairly explicit in the back and forth he has with Goliath. I didn't read all of the back and forth between David and Goliath, it's a little lengthy, um, but we heard David say, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. But he continues, And I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's a lot. So there are a few things we should probably unpack there. The first is the point I was making before. The difference between UMBC, for example, and David, is that UMBC was playing against Virginia for UMBC. David is fighting as a representative of God. Perhaps the 1980 U.S. Amateur Olympic hockey team might be a little bit more like David and that this hockey match was like essentially another battlefield for the Cold War, so they were fighting on behalf of America and capitalism as ideas. But an important distinction to make is that, at least I don't believe, that the U.S. hockey team was anointed by God the way David is. A complicating factor to this underdog story, however, is how David is acting leading up to this engagement. As we heard earlier, he is practically bragging about his prowess with a sling in killing lions and bears while out with the sheep. And then when he gets on the battlefield, he tells Goliath to his face that he's going to chop off his head and leave all of his dead friends to be eaten by wild animals instead of giving them a proper burial. David, seemingly, does not believe that David is the underdog. Saul does, as he first tries to tell David that he isn't tough enough, and then loads David down with his armor, which of course doesn't fit because Saul is exceptionally tall and David is shorter than average. So. David ditches it. David is a very complex character. There are a lot of great things about David. He doesn't take credit for this victory. He attributes it to God. Despite Saul later losing his mind and trying to kill David to maintain his own power, David refuses to kill Saul because Saul was anointed by God. And David has multiple easy opportunities to do this. 
Later, David unites Israel, brings prosperity, and deeply loves God. Unfortunately, unfortunately, there are also some pretty awful things about David, too. He rapes Bathsheba. Then he has her husband, who is also a close friend of his, killed in battle to cover up the resulting pregnancy. He then directly causes the death of that child, bringing additional sorrow and trauma to Bathsheba. Later, one of his sons rapes one of his daughters, resulting in revenge killings and struggles for power. All of this happens on his watch. And all those stories deserve their own sermons. I bring them up simply to show that David continues to struggle with his understanding of masculinity and his calling from God throughout his life. I would argue that God is certainly calling David to leadership, and that meant killing Goliath. But I don't think it also meant, after sinking the stone into Goliath's forehead, verses 50 and 51 read, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it from its sheath, and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. Cutting off someone's head after they're already dead and then proceeding to keep it as a trophy seems to me a bit more about being macho and a bit less about leading a group with God as a guy. God blesses David with immense power, but that does not mean that David is entitled to have sex with anyone he wants. Many of us, and by us I mean men, feel the need to prove or demonstrate our masculinity in various ways. Nod alluded to that in his reflection this morning. And this is by no means always a bad thing. David's understanding of masculinity pushes him out of his comfort zone into being a strong leader. He develops a wonderful, profound, and meaningful friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son forged partially through the experience of adversity and battle. His responsibility grows from shepherding his father's animals to shepherding all of Israel. But we also see in David's case that a misunderstanding of masculinity can lead to disastrous consequences. Seeing those with less power as people to manipulate for our own selfish desires arrogance and victory, attributing our success only to ourselves and not others who helped make it so, the use of violence to solve problems. Masculinity is complex. There's no doubt about that. It was then, and it is now. It's been complex even in my own life. As Nod said, I learned much about masculinity, as many of us do, from my father, whom many of you knew quite well. He was a talented and highly competitive golfer, and he fostered that play-to-win attitude in me. But he also showed me that the relationships with those whom you play the sport with matter more than being the winner. He demonstrated what it looked like to work hard 
and to provide for your family. <clears throat> Unfortunately, many mornings I would wake up early for school and he would have already left for work, arriving home hours after dinner, stressed and exhausted. This takes a toll on a mind and body. He taught me the meaning and the value of resilience, toughness, strength. But he was also a victim of his time in certain ways. And like many men, he buried his trauma. Richard Rohr, one of my favorite theologians, he's a prolific writer and Franciscan priest, once said, if we do not transform our pain, we will always transmit it. And in my experience, as I'm sure it is in many of yours, whether it's intentional or unintentional, we often tr transmit that pain onto those whom we love the most. I still struggle where masculinity meets anger and depression in my life. Where does healthy self-confidence end and arrogance begin? Am I arguing with someone simply because I want to change their mind? Or is it to prove that I'm right, that I'm smarter than they are? These are ongoing issues that I'm sure I will never fully resolve. But nonetheless, despite these challenges, I'm exceedingly grateful. I'm grateful because every morning that I wake up, God has given me another shot. God has blessed me with another day. Another day to be a little bit more like the David who deeply loves God and a little bit less like the David who abuses his power. Another day to become a little bit more of the man that I hope to be and a little bit less like the boy that I once was. It is for that that I'm eternally grateful. Praise the Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.